Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Quest for Life podcast. I'm Dr. Ed Slover, and I'm fiercely passionate about getting better every single day, both for myself and the people that come into my world. In today's episode, I'll be interviewing Brian Clayt. Brian is an award-winning IPEC certified professional coach, former board member of the International Coaching Federation, and avid outdoorsman. He specializes in behavioral transformation through emotional intelligence. More specifically, Brian's approach is focused on individuals and their personal limiting beliefs, and he works with them along with teams and organizations to identify those limiting beliefs, replace them, and then master the emotions. And in doing so, these individuals and teams are able to call forth the emotion needed to maximize their abilities to achieve their goals. Brian, welcome to the Quest for Life podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, Ed. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Um, your, your story, your journey is truly fascinating and inspiring. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that? Sure. So, so my story, um, wh- well, where would you like me to pick up my story? I guess would be my first question, because I can go on for hours about a story. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when, when you and I met one another, you and I talked about waking up one morning and you encountered a surprise. And uh, may, so maybe start there. I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to tell the punchline uh, too early on this. So go ahead. Sure. So so, so the, so the story, so that, so that story, and, and I'll be somewhat quick about it is, um, in, in 2009, um, I had woken up one morning and, um, had an extreme amount of pain in my left arm. Um, the pain had basically, um, come out of nowhere. In addition to the pain was the inability to, to really utilize it much. I could lift it a little bit, um, but it, it felt like I had a pinched nerve or a torn muscle or something um, that I just brushed off to the side. Um, you know, I, I, had, I, I decided I was going to ignore it because there was much more important things going on in life at that moment in time, specifically what I viewed as more, more important, which was, you know, what was going on at work. Um, you know, in 2009, work had become very, you know, kind of all-consuming for me. Um, you know, it was very focused on, on my career. The company I was working for was going through some turmoil, um, you know, at home, um, you know, had a family life that was relatively stable at that time. Um, so, so I was really focused on, on work and, and trying to continue to improve my, my position at work. Flash forward, um, a few years and the arm, the arm pain and the arm immobility didn't stop. It continued. Um, I had changed jobs a couple times, um, and and with each job change um, came different levels of success. But I was still being hampered by the inability to use my arm to the point to where the ability to use my arm um, had gotten so bad that to raise my hand over my head, I'd have to grab my left wrist and with my right hand and raise it over my head to get dressed. Um, now I know there's going to be some folks saying, "Well, why didn't you go to a doctor?" Um, and just historically, I'd never seen a doctor. I felt again, I didn't injure it. It it didn't happen from anything. So I just assumed it was still pinched nerve. Yes. Pinched nerve for that long. Um, something that, that physical therapy would, would, would take over. And I was doing my own physical therapy. Um, and I just, I just really didn't have the desire 
uh, to go see a doctor, um, primarily, you know, because I, I didn't want help. Um, it was something I wanted to solve on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I was going through, going through that. And then at the same time, I, I was at another, uh, you know, at a, at a stop in, in New Hampshire, as far as a job goes. And they, the company I was working for had decided to put all of its, um, you know, non, non-C-level executives um, and leaders through a, a program called the Value Leadership Program. And it was a nine-month exercise, and it was being put, on, um, put together by, by a person by the name of Lawrence Udell. And he had come in, and there was a lot of talk around the company, a lot of buzz around the company about, you know, when you go through this, through this exercise, it's life-changing. And, you know, I was in the middle of, 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 of a, new, a new career at this organization. Um, it just had a lot of successes. Um, but there was, there was an identified need that I had to, to improve. And that was really around, um, you know, my teaming ability, ability to be a better teammate for people. And so I sat there going through this value, you know, at the beginning of the value leadership program, like this is just going to get in the way of me learning how to be a better team member. I, I don't, I don't have time for this. This is nine months out of a year um, that I just don't have time for. Um, you know, the program started, um, you know, part of the program's responsibility was that the team that was put together um, had two, two stated goals. One goal was to complete a very specific business task uh, that the executives had laid out for us. But the second goal of the, organiz- of the team was to actually become a self-directed group. We weren't going to be told by the executives what to do. Um, we, had to, we had to self-form and in doing that, they had to select, the team had to select a leader. And even though I had raised my hand and, and asked the team not to select me as the leader, they viewed it as a project. I was overseeing the entirety of the corporation's project management office. And they said, it just makes sense. We need you to lead this project. And, and so I reluctantly said, okay. Um, a third of the way through the value leadership program, uh, the, you know, Lawrence had pulled me off to the side and, and had said, you know, Brian, I know you know how to lead your way, but the only way this is going to work is if you learn to lead my way. And in doing that, you have to become me. Interesting. And so I said, sure, why not? Right. You know, I just kind of blow it off to the side. You know, I'm, I'm taking what he's saying. I'm processing it and I'm hearing it. Um, but I said, sure, of, co- of course, of course, I'll, I'll learn to lead a different way. And it really didn't hit me what that meant until we were in a, an exercise where we were going through um, a, an effort to list out our, our limiting beliefs and start to identify um, those new beliefs that we wanted to take on. And it was, a, it was an exercise that was focused on the concept of pain and pleasure which is people either avoid pain or they seek pleasure. Um, so, so the method was list both of them um, and understand which one of these is going to be more, um, more purposeful for you to either avoid or to seek to achieve your goal. And so I did it. I put some thought into it, but I wasn't really into it on day one. On day two, it was my job to lead the next group of people that came in to do this. Um, And in doing so, Lawrence had sat me down and and, and gave me one of my my first and and probably most important lesson, which was 
how to feel and impact the energy of a room. And you know, for folks who aren't, aren't, aren't used to it or have heard it and thinks it's kind of out there, the, the best way I describe it to folks who might be a little bit skeptical on it is in, envision yourself ever having walked into a room and noticing that there's a tension between two people in a room. Yeah. Like you can, you walk in and we've all said, it, man, man, you can cut the tension in here with a knife, you can feel it. Well, the idea of this practice is to not just feel when there's tension, but to feel any type of energies that are going on in the room, whether it be, whether it be fear, whether it be anger, whether it be apprehension, whatever it was. And, and so I started to learn how to not just feel it, um, but to alter it in this, in this session with Lawrence. And I was very surprised at how well it worked. Um, during the session, um, the room that when I walked into it and when I was sitting in the middle of it, the room was very, very quiet and you could tell people were shy and they didn't want to openly talk. They were broken off into small groups and everybody ran as far as they could into a corner and as far away from somebody else um, to pair up because they didn't really want to share these things with, with other folks mm -hmm. uh, openly at the very beginning. Um, my job was to help the room uh, become much more open and much more fluid and much more willing to share. And after learning how to do this and, and it becoming effective in the room, um, I left that night, you know, very surprised because I was a naysayer. I, 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 I thought this was all silly, um, but it happened in front of me. And so I went home that night and decided that uh, I needed to go for a walk. And I went for a walk and it hit me during the walk that I, I needed to do the limiting beliefs exercise for real. That, that I couldn't just do what I did the first time, which was enough to get by. So I went in to, to, to the place I was staying at and I did the exercise on my own and became very real and honest with myself. Um, you know, wrote down the emotional baggage that I was carrying with myself that was, that was my limiting beliefs. I didn't even try to replace them. The limiting beliefs that were coming out were just so strong, so powerful, so, so monumental and influential to me that I, that's all I had the, the ability to do um, before basically I was, I was wiped out and needed to fall asleep. So I went to bed that night, um, you know, completely drained and woke up the next morning. And when I got up, I noticed that my left arm didn't just feel better, that had returned to 100% full use. You had no muscle atrophy at all. No muscle atrophy. It's incredible. Um, no, 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 no impingement, no locking, um, no pain, like not even a slight pain. I woke up and it had full, complete use. And so I went into the office that day. Then Lawrence had been there because that was going to be his last day for that for that session in the office. And and I walked in, and people who had known me noticed that my left arm was working. And they asked, you know, had I seen anyone? And I said, you know, I was very quiet about it. I'm like, no, I haven't seen anything. And I haven't gone to anywhere. And they're like, what happened? I'm like, I, I don't know. And so I met with Lawrence and I sat down across from him and I said, Lawrence, what the hell did you do to me? <laughs> and, and his response was, well, what did you do to yourself? Mm. And it's a very Jedi mind trick, Brian. <laughs> it was it was very Jedi mind trick. And so we, we spoke about it for a little bit and then he had to leave, but he left me with it. Um, 
And he, what he left me with was, what you just did is available to you at any point in time in your life. Mm. And what was most what was most important for me um, was the realization that the emotions that I was carrying, the baggage that I was carrying, the beliefs that I held about myself, weren't just holding me back potentially in in, in pers- you know personal relationships or teaming at work, but it was now developing a physical manifestation. Um, they were they had become so pronounced and so prevalent in my life that they were physically holding me back. Mm. Um, and, 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 and being able to identify and recognize that um, was, was life-changing. Wow, that, that's, that's such an incredible story. I remember reading about it. I remember speaking with you about it. So this is the third time I've been exposed to it, and it still just absolutely blows me away. Um, you, you also help people develop their emotional intelligence. I mean, that concept, as you and I both know, it's not new. It, it first showed up in the literature back in the 1960s. It wasn't really popularized until the 1990s. And nowadays, it seems like it's an integral part of what it means to lead ourselves and to lead others. So from your perspective and experience, what is it? What is emotional intelligence and why is it so important? Sure. And so I'm going to stray away from the 90s corporate emotional intelligence. Okay. Because anybody can go out and, and buy the books. You can go out, buy emotional intelligence 2.0. Um, and, and you know, you can go and do a search right now and you get the, you'll get like the six or eight quadrants that make up emotional intelligence. Um, and, and the reason I'm going to stray away from it is that what I personally have found is that emotional intelligence isn't about others. It, it, it isn't about trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes or try to look at somebody and, and, and you know, try to, try to feel how they would feel. Um, you know, emotional intelligence is, is really about yourself. And are you able to identify the emotions that you're experiencing? Understand why those emotions are there. And again, this is all about you be able to determine what emotion do you really wanna bring forward at this moment in time to help be the person that you want to be. And so why is that important? I mean, I will, I will say, you know, you know, nowadays, and, and, and you know, I'll, I'll speak within the last two to three years, there's been such, you know, with, with, with all the stuff that's been going on, at least in the US, um, you know, there, there, there's never been a time that, that not only I've been aware of, but that I could even find through research where we've had such a mental health crisis in a country, you know, you know, from, from, you know, from whether you want to make it about lockdowns or, or political discord, or, you know, just general uh, stress and strain right now over how do I live cost of inflation. There's just so much, um, so many items going on within people's lives where it feels like it's out of control. Your emotional intelligence, your, your emotional state is the one thing you can control. Yeah. It puts, it puts you back in control of, of how it is you want to react. And what I will say is that when you start to leverage emotions to your advantage and you start becoming that person you want to be, the things that you've been seeking 
and being, and you've been unsuccessful in finding now start to find you. Hmm. And it happens in the oddest, weirdest ways. If you're, if you're being open um, at that moment in time. Now, go ahead. Well, yeah. So a commonly held belief with regard to emotional intelligence is that if someone demonstrates it or possesses a high degree of emotional intelligence, that they need to be empathetic. And in your work, you don't really focus on empathy and you touched on that just a little bit as a key tenant of emotional intelligence. So um, can you expound on that a little bit further? Sure. And so, so when you, when you do, when you, when you, when you look at traditional emotional intelligence, um, and, and you focus a lot on empathy. Um, where they're asking you to be empathetic is to others. Um, you know, you're supposed to ask yourself questions about how might this person feel, or you know, how might this impact them. And you know, in today's world, you, you'll hear it a lot in in DEI type training, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion and inclusion training. Um, you know, you'll you'll hear that a lot. And the reason why I, I've, I've moved away from that and said, I actually think that that's a false approach, a, a, an actual harmful approach, is that number one, it moves you away from who you are, right? Because now you're focused on the other person. And I'm now almost manipulative in that I'm going to do things to try to get them to a state where I think they should be. So if I'm sitting there constantly saying, well, well what's going to make Ed happy? If I say this, will this make Ed happy? Um, you know, wait a minute, what should I say to make Ed happy? Let me think through all the interactions I've had and I'll say this, but it really isn't me being me. It's me trying to get you to where I want you to be. The, the second issue with that is that I truly believe that if you're trying to constantly put yourself in someone else's shoes by asking yourself the question, you're not taking advantage of the one thing that you have, which is for me to ask you the question and for me and you to start having a conversation. And, and, and so much today, you know, whether it's, it's through social media or through apps or through lockdowns or whatever it is, the ability to interact with the people is declining. The ability to have real communications and conversations with folks are going down. And so I actually see this as part of that negative spiral downwards that that's creating it because my goal is to is to have that conversation with you just with myself and and i just so that's why i walk away from 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 empathy as taught traditionally where i do think empathy comes into play is you want to be empathetic towards yourself Hmm. And, and the reason why empathy towards yourself is very important is that it's very difficult to remove limiting beliefs. It's very difficult to move to a state of forgiveness. It's very difficult to acknowledge the things that you've done in the past um, don't need to define you in the future if you can't be empathetic towards yourself. And where do, where do limited, lim, sorry, excuse me, limiting beliefs come from? Well, so those... <laughs> we can go into a big giant philosophical debate on that, (laughs) right? Um, Depends on which, depends on which group um, you want to subscribe to. So maybe just uh, outline one or two examples. Sure. So, so a limiting belief in and of itself is just, it's a personal belief you hold that prevents you from moving forward. So that that's how it gets the term limiting belief. So it is a belief 
Um, and, you know, and it is something that, that stops you from taking a step forward or taking a different action or taking a different direction. So I'll always, I, I'll use myself as an example. And, and I'll use the less powerful one and then the more powerful one. So the less powerful one that I had, and, and this is a recent one, was that I had a limiting belief that cryptocurrencies were a scam. Mm. Okay. And, I, and, I'll, and, I, and I'm going to use this to show like how it gets in your way. So in 2001, it was, it was late December 2020, early January 2021, my wife came to me and this was the third time she'd asked me whether I wanted to invest in a cryptocurrency. And I was very, very frustrated at this point because I'd made it very clear I felt cryptocurrencies were a scam. Um, and she brought forward a couple of cryptocurrencies and said, you know, I really think we should just take a small, a very small amount of money and put it into, and put it into here just to see what happens. And I, and I had, I was holding this belief so hard that I wasn't even willing $5 into a cryptocurrency. Flash forward to August of 2021. Had I followed my wife's advice and put just $5 in the cryptocurrency that she was recommending, that $5 within eight months time frame would have been worth over two and a half million dollars. That's incredible. <laughs> All right. So, so, so that limiting belief prevented me from financial independence. Had I just been willing to to, to, to understand that it was fear, the emotion of fear of losing $5 was preventing me from potentially gaining. Um, and not even worry about potentially gaining, it was just the fear of losing $5. I just feared it. it. It stopped me from taking an action forward. The limiting belief that actually unlocked my shoulder. And there were two of them that I went through. Um, the first limiting belief was that as a person, I was worthless. And the second one was that I was undeserving of any love. Now, I held on to those beliefs because those beliefs motivated me. Right? These were things that I was using to do better at work. Right. So I, the more that I could tell myself that I was I was worthless. The stronger my work product would be the just to be able to, the to say, look, chip on your shoulder. Well, it was it was it was it was I could do it and then say, look, there's my worth. I may not have worth, but there it was right there. There's right. the X and the O that, that says I did something that was of worth. Gotcha. Um, and I could keep doing that. And, I, and, and, and the interesting thing with the limiting belief, you asked where they come from. Um, for me, it came from continued success. So it became self-reinforcing in many ways. It, it, it became very self-reinforcing. It was something where the more I did it, the more effective I became in an outward place. And I didn't understand internally what it was doing. Um, I did it so much and to the point where my body just said, all right, you're not going to get to use this anymore. And even then, as I mentioned at the beginning, my focus was still on, all right, keep doing work better. 
yeah, it's, it, it doesn't work. My left arm doesn't work, but I've got another one and I don't need it to do my job. It's a little frustrating. It's annoying, but you know, I'll keep, I'll keep going. And I continued to go, I continued to go down that route. Um, and in doing so, um, you know, put myself in a number of states where six, the success I was looking for, the success about that was more aligned with who I was as a person, because corporate profits really wasn't what I was about. Now, you know, that, you know, that, that, you know, that wasn't me. Um, but that's what I was working towards. That's what I was helping groups achieve. Um, you know, the minute I let that go, those things that I really wanted to be came rushing in very fast. Brian, where do our, where do our personal values, our unique values fit into this in our belief system and perpetuating, um, you know, perpetuating self-limiting beliefs? I mean, is it a situation where we, um, we talk ourselves into certain things that we value and then those form our beliefs. How does that, how does that fit from your perspective? Sure. So values and beliefs are two completely different things. Um, your values are really more, you know, how you see yourself. Those are your self values and values are usually very descriptive. There'll be things like I value creativity. Right. So create being creative is a value. Being loving is a value. Being honest is a value. Um, beliefs are the are the are the are the thoughts about yourself that you hold to achieve. And more times than not, and, and I want to say more times than not, 100 percent of the time when I've worked with, with folks on this, your limiting beliefs and your values are complete opposites of each other. Interesting. They, they are 100% an opposite of each other. You, you, you couldn't, you, it's night and day. So more times than not, when people would mark something like honesty as a value, um, a limiting belief they hold is that they can't let people know the truth about themselves or the truth about something. If people knew who I was, if people knew what I did, if people knew how I thought, then you know my, my world would be shattered. Um, and, and you'll find that. So, so the way they work is typically those things that you value are those things that you, that you actually prevent yourself from becoming through those limiting beliefs. That's very interesting. Now, have you found from your experience that holds true for both men and women? Or are there any differences um, between men and women with regard to either self-limiting beliefs or emotional intelligence? So, so what I would say is that, that men and women, again, this is through, through, through the clients that I've had, through, through research that I've, that I've read, um, number one, men and women are equally emotionally intelligent. They, there's, you know, there's been um, zero scientific evidence to show that men and women are not equally emotionally intelligent, which goes contradictory to what people think, whether you be a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. Now, the one, you know, the one study that, that did the research on it, um, and there's been a lot that's, that's come afterwards just to try to, to try to nail it is, 
that goes back to that bigger wheel concept of what is emotional intelligence, where there's you know six or eight factors to it. And what they found was that men um, intelligent in some spaces, women were more emotionally intelligent in other places. And where people really latch on to is the concept of empathy towards others. You know, women will score way higher marks typically in empathy towards others than men in, in that space. But I tend to believe it's because of the way that it's measured. Um, men will hold, you know, when, when, you, when, you, when you take a look and move away from emotional intelligence and move more towards a, a, you know, a Carl Jung style um, archetype model, men view themselves traditionally as, as providing value to the world if they can provide. And they're typically not providing for themselves they're providing for others. They're doing it out of caring for, for others. Now, that doesn't score very high on the empathy scale. Even though, you know, that's where men will, will typically, you know, get their, 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 their guidance. Um, but aside from, from that, what I've seen is, you know, almost identical men and women have and hold the same limiting beliefs. It's how they got to them. And, and, and by the way, this is cross-culture. This is called, you know, cross-race. This is cross-country. You know, I've worked with folks from the UK. I've worked with folks from the US. I've worked with folks in India. Um, worked with folks from, originally from Africa. Mm -hmm. um, they're all the same. Um, it's just how they got there and the things that they were told through their lives that reinforced the way they acted really very interesting stuff. So one final question for you, Brian. The first 15 years of your career, you rose through the corporate ranks, you won a bunch of awards, you had executive titles, you excelled at winning. Uh -huh. From then until now, and everything that you've described you know, here today, and everything that you've lived over the last, uh, gosh, decade plus, how has your concept of winning changed or evolved? So, so what I would say is, is winning is no longer a thing for me. So, you know, I'll, I'll even go back, you know, yes, 15 years in the corporate world, I was definitely winning. And, and that was my goal. I wanted to win. I wanted to have the highest ranking. I wanted to have the promotion. I wanted the acknowledgement. I wanted my name on walls. I wanted to be called out into the front of the group. Um, that was all winning. When I was younger, winning was important. I was on sports teams. I was, in a, I was a, a very um, you know, elite athlete in high school. Um, go back to when I was a child you know, six, seven, eight years old, winning was important to me. Grades were important to me. It wasn't good enough for me just to get a B. I was getting A's, you know, from the time I was in elementary school and middle school. When I was really young, like before, before even the concept of winning could be there, when it was me and my little brother, and my little brother was three years old, him, him defying me and being able to sit up on his own, <laughs> needed to be addressed because I needed to be winning. 
And he was knocked over. My parents tell me all the time, he's, they would all say, you're the biggest jerk. Your brother would just be trying to sit up. You know, he's just learning. You just walk up for no reason out of a room, look at him sitting and knock him over and walk away. And that's because I had to win. I had to win that moment. I had to win the attention. I had to win. Um, now, winning doesn't matter. I'm not, and, and, and there's a difference between, and there's, there's this dichotomy right now in the US. Um, you know, this concept of everybody gets a trophy. You're either an everybody gets a trophy person or you're a, there's a winner and a loser. And depending upon what's going on in your life, there's a place for both of them, right? I mean, if you're an elite athlete, winning is important, but if it becomes all consuming, um, there are things that, that you're going to, that you're going to miss out. So, so right now where, where I am is rather than win, I want to, I want to find opportunity. And if you're looking for opportunities, you don't have time to worry about who's winning and who's losing. What you're just trying to do is, is identify the place where you can bring the, the most amount of positive change, the most amount of constructive change as you can, and then becoming a part of it. And whatever that part is, is, is really irrelevant. You just want to be a part of it. Um, and so, so winning isn't a thing anymore. I don't keep score anymore. It doesn't mean that I give myself a trophy. It doesn't mean that everybody around me gets trophies. I do acknowledge when I failed. As I mentioned with the Shibu Inu thing, I failed. Mm -hmm. I don't get a trophy for, for not getting, you know, for not getting that, that uh, for not getting that cryptocurrency. Um, you have to acknowledge it. You have to acknowledge, acknowledge your successes. You have to acknowledge your failures. Um, but when you stop looking at it as if, for me to get something, you have to not get something or the person across from me has to not get something. Um, it opens up the opportunity um, for, for, for more success and, and broader success than you could have ever done by yourself. Yeah, there's no doubt. Moving beyond living in a world of a zero sum game opens us up to so many more possibilities. And all the knowledge and wisdom you've shared today, Brian, has been really, really insightful. Um, please share with the listeners how people can get in touch with you or uh, get to know your work a little bit better. Sure. So the easiest way to get in touch with me, um, you know, I'll give, I'll, give the, I'll give two ways. You can find me on LinkedIn, you know, at, at Brian Clayt. Um, I, I'm the only one out there. Um, so you can, if, you, if you can find Brian Clayt, you have found me. Um, the other way is to contact me, um, either via, you know, via phone, either through call or a text at 860-341-1198. Uh, we do have a company website, which is, um, awakenedexplorations.com. Um, you can find what we do there. Um, but you know, those would be the three, the three best places. If you're, you know, if you, if you want to learn more, or if you want to get a hold of me, the best way to do it. Wonderful. Well, be sure to connect with Brian at awakenedexplorations.com or via LinkedIn. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Clate, C-L-A-T-E. Brian, thank you so much once again for being on the Quest for Life podcast. You're welcome. Thanks, Ed. You can contact the show at thequestforlife.com. That's the quest, the number four life.com. Be sure to leave the show a five-star rating, even consider writing a review. Certainly appreciate it. 
And as always, thank you for joining the conversation.